yeah, you know, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to, every like six months or so, I convince myself, yeah, I can, I, I'll be able to grow a beard. I've just got to believe in myself. And then after like about a month, I'm just like, I can't grow a beard. It's, it's, it's not to be fair, I've, I've never wanted a beard. I've always just wanted stubble. But like when I do get stubble, it's like, I, I look like 13, 12, something like that. <laughs> I just, I, Dan, I just like your, I mean, in line with what we're going to talk about today, I just like your pop psychology. I've just got to believe I can grow a beard. Yeah. And then I'll that's grow it. a beard. I mean, that's just, it's up there with the bullshit that all the motivational gurus, uh, <laughs> you know, prance and scream about all the time. But you've got, you've got a little bit of a, 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 I don't know if this is going to be a bad thing to say. You might hang up on me now. You've got a bit of a Gerard look going on there. Oh, I'll take that. I'll take that. I got called Perlo once as well. Do you know what I mean? Or they've mm. obviously seen me deep in midfield skills, whipping balls <laughs> out of the wing. He might just have seen you drinking red wine. To be <laughs> yeah, <honest. laughs> yeah. yeah, pissed probably. and trying to talk Italian or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Dan Abrahams. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You only get into, out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today, we're talking to Dan Abrahams. Um, okay, so I'm Dan Abrahams. Um, I'm a uh, sport psychologist, former professional golfer, and um, uh, that's what I do, and that's who I am. I live in Cheltenham, and um, I, I travel around the world and uh, uh, being a sports psychologist, I suppose, and write quite a lot and write books, and uh, that's that's who I am and what I do succinctly. Joining me today is Ryan Pulford, the main man, the main chap. How are we, mate? How are we doing, Ryan? Yeah, not too bad, thanks, mate. How are you? Yeah, you know, not so bad on this uh, this fine Sunday morning. I'm I'm doing I'm doing okay. I'm doing uh, not too bad at all. Have you been watching any of the international football this weekend? Um. I've I watched England San Marino, but I ha- I didn't watch anything else. But I have been keeping tabs on it. I've seen a few goals and I've checked all the results. Um, I've also been looking at some of the uh, African nations qualifying as well. Oh yeah, there's, there's, it always just kicks up some like random results as well. <laughs> I find it really interesting. I think like Cape Verde beat, I think it was Senegal or Cameroon the other day three one, and you're just like. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> like, you would just go onto, like, the team and there'll be, like, a random player who plays in, like, League 2 centre mid up against, like, a dresser guy. And you're like, <laughs> how have they beaten them? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and there was Luxembourg. Where, where I've beat Ireland, Ireland, I know. Yeah, yeah. I was, see, I was, I was, um, I wasn't watching the matches yesterday evening. And uh, I'll tell you what, I watched a little bit of the Holland match and, and, and they were, I think they were playing Lafayette, weren't they? But, I literally only t- I turned it on and then I saw that there were fans in the stadium and I just watched it for that. It was just really weird to watch a football match with fans in the stadium. I think I think Russia had fans in the stadium as well. But the way that um, Holland had done it, it wasn't... I think they limited it to about 5,000, but they didn't do it where everyone was spaced out. 
they were grouped into like blocks all over the stadium of what looked like a few hundred. So there was like a decent noise. It sounded like a proper noise when like the goals were going in and stuff. And it was very weird to say the least. Um, yeah. But yeah, that Luxembourg result for Ireland is shocking. It's weird that, like, Luxembourg are, um, I'm not trying to make excuses, they are randomly a nation on the up. They've got, like, a few players now who play. So, like, the guy who scored the goal plays for Dynamo Kiev. And as someone put it the other day, well, yesterday, um, it was a Dynamo Kiev striker scoring past a Rochdale goalkeeper, which I thought was quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they've got another lad who's at, uh, I think he's at Norwich, but he's out on loan. For a nation of their size, they are punching above the weight, but... Nothing's gone well for Ireland. And I think I saw our friend Miguel Delaney tweeting about it, talking about um, maybe sacking the manager wouldn't even help as well because they're kind of at a stage where I think they just need to rethink the whole thing. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, looking at Luxembourg's results, they've beaten Montenegro and Cyprus in recent times. You want like absolutely terrible sides. So I suppose it isn't, although they did yeah. lose to Qatar. For, yeah, like, but our place to go now. Um, <laughs> it's a warm place to go <laughs> <laughs> what I would say as well just to clear up some of my comments before uh, Cape Verde beat Cameroon uh, Senegal drew with Congo but what, what really got me was like Senegal's team had Mane Keita, Saar, Guy and in the Congo centre mid was a fellow called Christopher Misailo who plays for Swindon he actually played against Tramia for Oldham I think a few years back and I thought what a brilliant, brilliant result for the Congo, that is. <laughs> really big fan of the Congo, Ryan Pulford fan <laughs> yeah, of the I'm Congo. <laughs> anyway, let's get on with um let's get on with today's episode. We've got an absolutely fascinating interview with uh, with sports psychologist and former professional golfer Dan Abrahams today. I must admit, when I was recording this episode, which um I think it was one I did with Ant one evening, I was just sitting and gawking down the camera for almost all of, of Dan's answers. Uh, we, we, I think we'd, we'd on this podcast, I think you'll agree, Ryan, we'd always wanted to get a sports psychologist on. They've been mentioned a lot by some of the footballers, former footballers that we'd spoken to um, in relation to things at the club where they were going for support. And I think the main thing for us was looking at the kind of interception between performance and well-being of football clubs. And that was something we were really interested in, in talking to Dan about. And that brings us nicely on to today's theme, Ryan. Do you want to give the listeners the theme for this episode, mate. Yeah, of course. So the theme for this um, episode is understanding the behaviours of elite athletes. Absolutely. And that's our theme. If you, the listener, pick up on anything that we haven't, then make sure you email us at manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com or give us a tweet at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use that hashtag, where's the talking lads, or a shortened version of WTTL hashtag WTTL. And if you do enjoy today's episode, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and uh, give us a rating, give us a review, that would be really helpful in, in growing the podcast and reaching new listeners. So we're now going to pass you over to Dan Abrahams and we'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking. And then obviously the, the podcast itself, Dan, is about uh, mental health, mental health in football and that sort of thing. Could you give us an idea as to why you agreed to do an interview for us? 
I have no idea, to be honest with you now. I'm <laughs> just cursing myself. Um, uh, no, I just think uh, you guys got in touch. And uh, I think it's, uh, I mean, obviously we spoke off air in terms of me being, and we're, we're going to come on to this, being more of a performance psychologist. However, um, no matter who, you, you know, as a sports psychologist, you, you are helping with players' uh, welfare and well-being. That's not quite the mental health piece, but I think it's, I th- I think it's a very interesting um position we're in right now um i don't agree with everything that's going on and being said which i know is going to tap your interest straight away um i think we we need to tread carefully when it comes to mental health welfare and well-being um i think it's a i think it's brilliant uh, that you started this podcast uh, i think it's vital important crucial to ha- keep having the conversations uh in part because i think that we need to be more educated on this side of things. Um, and and so that's, I suppose, uh, amongst the reasons I'd like talking to different people about this stuff. So, uh, yeah, that's why I've uh, agreed to come on. Dan, you were a, a professional golfer between 1997 and about 2006. Yeah, how yeah, did, just, a, just a little bit before I finished, yeah, yeah. Yeah, how did you, um, how did you first get into golf? Because it's kind of a, it's not a, not seen as a young man's game, is it? It's sort of seen as a game <laughs> the older fellas play. How did you manage to get into that? Bringing the stereotypes out there straight away, <laughs> though, right? Yeah, when everybody finishes playing football, they play golf. Um, I, I, I would, I would slightly contest that. I mean, I, I, I certainly think it's a sport that that has its has its challenges, uh, certainly in modern day times, in terms of its uh, elitism and sexism and racism, and I, I think it certainly leaves most golfers young people my age and, and younger and older look absolutely um feeling a bit uncomfortable about its roots its history but um i was a sporty kid and you know what i just watched it on tv and i always remember nick faro Nick talking about watching big jack jack nicholas the greatest of all time alongside tiger woods um watched him play the masters one year and that got him playing and i think i, I was watching cynic faldo um in around about 1989 win the uh, u.s masters uh beating scott hoke in a playoff and i thought i really fancy giving that a go you know it was really attractive you know watching it on tv um and i played all sports and uh, it wasn't until i was 13 so it was about 1990 that i started to, to to give it a go and had some lessons and it just built from there really um and um i i think it was probably you know if i reflect back i wish i'd started a lot younger i would have had a better chance at having a better career in the game but uh it was just watching it on TV, and I just tried it and fell in love with it, and everything went from there. Obviously, golf is—it's phenomenally frustrating, really. I, <laughs> I actually, I actually played today. Um, I was, you could call it playing. I actually went and, and went round and you know walked the six miles and hit a few good ones and a few terrible ones. <laughs> yep, uh, lost many, many golf balls, but um. <laughs> How um how how did you find that as like a as a youngster? Did you find it more of a, a challenge to, to get better and better, or was it you instantly knew this is quite frustrating? Did you want to beat it almost? Because that's, mm. that's where I kind of feel with golf. You're like I should be able to hit this ball. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I I I, I loved it. I loved it. Uh, that's for sure. I really enjoyed doing it. It became something that I attached to just because I was quite, I, I, I'm quite an introverted person. And I, I think it, 
not always, but it can lend uh, towards in, introverted people um, and uh, or kids, I should say. And so it became something. And I was kind of underachieving at school. I was very fortunate. My parents sent me to a very good school, but I was underachieving. And really, my energy and my efforts, rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly in the eyes of my parents and teachers, I it was my 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 head was turned towards golf. And it and as things grew and I, I i mean i didn't i had a 36 handicap to begin with so pretty bad and then it then after the first year it didn't really come down and then it halved and then it halved again and then i had a dodgy year and then suddenly i was off scratch at 17 18 and you know which is okay you know it's not but at the time you had justin rose who was playing off plus three and you had tight uh, you had Sergio was a couple of years behind me and Sergio Garcia and he was a plus five. I was a scratch. So for people who don't know the handicap system, it goes five, four, three, two, one, zero, plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four, plus five. So they were really good. And 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 so I was okay, but I had a hell of, hell of a temperament. I mean, I'm a sports psych now and looking back, I mean, boy, I, I once had, uh, I've been writing about this recently in my my latest book that i'm writing i once got three clubs stuck up a, up a tree um yeah go go figure i basically what i did was i hit a terrible shot through my driver and um it got stuck up a tree and so to try to get that club down i threw a club to this lodger and that got stuck up the tree as well and then i threw it through another club up and that and this is no exaggeration and i got another club stuck up the tree so in the end <laughs> i had to be nimble and climb up the tree shake it and i managed to, to to get them down um and you see all kinds of things in professional golf i've seen some crazy crazy things like like guys smashing their bag and breaking half of their half the clubs in their bag i've seen people throw their clubs in the water i mean it's and i had a real big temp, bad temperament until the junior organizer sat me down and said i want to make you club captain next year or junior captain next year but you've got to grow up son you know you gotta you you, you gotta calm down manage your emotions and very simple thing and, and i did and um that helped me so yeah i loved it had a terrible it suited my personality and i had a terrible terrible temperament so along the way you know to become a professional you have to give up quite a lot of things and obviously you're giving up these things where you know socially or, or anywhere else you're giving them up as a, as a youngster which can be quite hard did you ever did you ever find that really difficult along the way or were you quite excited to to give those up and focus on on becoming a professional yeah, I mean, I think sacrifice is a fun, is a, is a subjective thing, isn't it? I, I think that it would be desperately first world of me to say, "Hey, I sacrificed this and that," and I, I had a very loving, caring upbringing, and um, I was very fortunate. And um, uh, so, I, I wouldn't maybe sacrifice is the wrong word. I, I think I definitely not as not as a mid-teen, but definitely as a late teen, I left school and uh, all my friends went off to university and were having a great time and i became pro golfer at that stage i played amateur golf for a bit and, and then turned pro and went into the shop to become an assistant pro because i, I realized pretty quickly as an amateur golfer it wasn't really going to go anywhere so i needed time to go into the shop and i had a head professional who was my boss who allowed me to play that was the idea i was going to do my pga three-year pga qualifications professional golfers association so i was 19 18 19 20 and that's when i really experienced quite quite strong low mood because my friends had gone away and i wasn't really kicking on as a golfer and my identity got very i'm really 
going down the psychological path here a bit with my explanation, but my identity came wrapped in, in I'm a golfer. My name's Dan Abrahams and I'm a golfer. Not my name's Dan Abrahams and I'm this and I'm that and I've got multiple identities, which is a big part of, we call it athletic identity in sports psychology. And it's a big part of maybe some of the things we might talk about today. Um, and I definitely, I definitely, I, I wouldn't say I suffered from depression, but I suffered from low mood. And so I wouldn't say it was sacrifice. It was just in my late teens and then into my 20s, it was just like, whoa, is this it? professional golf i'm not having a great time here um and uh and and so not sacrifice just not the nicest of times when you know ostensibly i had a i i had a very loving caring family and, a, and a nothing i was very healthy fit healthy everything you know life was good but i had this challenge i suppose so that that's how i'd answer that question what kind of changes when you become a, a professional in 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 golf it's a good it's a good question i mean i think i'll start by answering that but actually i mean i was for three years i was lead psychologist for england golf and so england golf the way it works in golf is that you you really as as uh, with england golf it's amateur stuff so you're, you're working with the best amateurs in england they're very 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 good players who want to kick on and have professional careers but there's something very interesting about amateur golf in as much as you're still you're you're playing at a great level but you're still an amateur and there's something about turning professional, having a card in your hand, and this is it now. You're playing for money. This is for your career. You know, you can't afford to, to or your perception is you can't afford to mess up. You know, you've got to go out there. You've got to shoot under par. Um, you've got to go low. You've got to earn money unless you're very fortunate. You've got multiple sponsors or you've got wealthy wealthy parents or something like that so um the the, the pressure is is it changes when you turn professional you've got a god and i still think it's the same in in football is that um it now matters it now really really matters and you've got to go out and you perceive that you've got to go and perform and so yeah, that I think that that's that's the main thing is your perceptions of the pressure to perform, and that can be so intense and so stifling. Um, and so much of my work is helping players in all sports deal with that kind of um, narrative, that kind of pressure. Um, and that's certainly what I had to deal with. And obviously, you touched on a little bit before. You had a, had a couple of times where with like low mood. Mm. But did you enjoy being a professional? Did you did you enjoy that that part of it? I think it was a mixed bag. I think it, you know, it's it's certainly not. Uh, I just wonder actually if enjoying and not enjoying things lie not on the same continuum, but on two separate continuums. Mm. I just think sometimes you're enjoying it and not enjoying it at the same time. If that makes <laughs> sense, there's so much you're loving about it, and uh, there's definitely a lot of you know in your own mind. It, you are having a bit of a battle in terms of, come on, I'm a pro golfer, I'm healthy, all life is good. Um, but at the same time, success and failure is so in your face. It is so in your face. And that's the thing about sports, especially at the elite adult level, the professional level, is success and failure is so in your face. Whether it's a slice out of town, you know, causing a double or a triple bogey, whether it's a horrendous round, whether it's a life-changing round because you've gone really low and you've gone up in the order of merit, whatever tour you want, it's it's it, it's so in your face. So um, that's, that's what makes it brilliant and 
challenging in equal measure. That's your privilege and your burden in equal measure. So I think I think it's it's a whole raft of things that you're enjoying and not enjoying thrown into a pretty potent cocktail of emotion. I also play cricket as well, and Danny's probably gone to sleep right now that I've mentioned that. Um, <laughs> but cricket and, and golf, obviously, it's it's hitting a ball. It's it's being outside for a very very long period of time, mm. but it's also there's a lot to do focus wise. You know, mm. if you're not quite in the in the right frame of mind to to go and hit a ball or even even run up and bowl in, in terms of cricket or stand there in the field, sometimes it can be really really tough. Um, with golf, did you ever feel that way? Did you ever stand on the tee box and think, oh, <laughs> I don't know where this is going to go for a start? Or did you ever have those kind of periods? I, I wish uh, I wish I had more times where I didn't feel that way. That was the whole right. problem. I mean, that's why I'm a sports psychologist now. I wanted to, I, I was asking myself, why am I thinking like this and feeling like this? And I walk onto the tee and the, the, my playing partners are so much better than me or so yeah. I thought. And, and yeah, it was absolutely crippling. And there's everything about uh, at that level of sport is the control game. You've got to take charge of yourself on the pitch. You've got to take control. You've got to dominate yourself. That's what every sport is all about, first and foremost, in my humble opinion. And uh, I was just awful at that. And if I knew what I, if I knew then what I know now, I don't think I would have been in the world's top two hundred. I don't think I would have got wealthy from the career, but I certainly would have had a lot more fun, and I certainly would have won more money. So I was like that all the time. And you'll be amazed how many players are like that in all sports is that they are they really struggle to manage themselves under the gun and obviously you, you had that career change as well um you changed mm. the sports psychology um how did you find that transition and and you know how did it come about as well yeah well as i alluded to there i was always the player who asked why why am i thinking like this why am i feeling like this and i'd picked up sports psychology books i mean i picked up one at the age of 15 uh, timothy galway's in the game of golf which was a sequel to his in the game of tennis which is is quite an iconic text from the early 70s uh, and it's not psychologically per psychological per se it's more sort of coaching psychology but that was a good introduction and then i picked up a book called golf is not a game of perfect by a guy called dr bob Teller, who's uh, again used this word iconic, fairly iconic sports psychologist in the in the states, who's worked with some of the leading golfers in the world, and um, I so I had an interest and I had an interest because I was coaching. So I stopped playing. I was coaching. I'd seen some sports psychologists when I was playing, and I'd had some mixed sort of experiences there. Um, and then I started coaching, and I was doing lots of CPD, so in continuing professional development days and programs and seminars and stuff as a, as a golf coach and it just became more interesting and I decided to do a, a, a first degree in psychology as I was coaching uh, and then I went on to a master's degree in sports psychology and then I came to a bit of a crossroads do I do do I stay with the golf coaching and uh, have sports psychology uh, not so much on the side but have ha use that to enhance my coaching credentials, essentially. Or do I pack all that in and become a sports psychologist? Uh, and so I decided the latter because I think I wanted the intellectual challenge. Um, and I just loved 
all sports and I wanted to work in all sports. It was just, I just didn't want to stand on the range. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Um, didn't want to stand on the range, just um, coaching golf all the time. So um, that's the direction I took. So I became a, a uh, I did my supervision, which you do supervision with uh, a supervisor. Um, and um I became a registered sports psychologist just under 15 years ago. And um, yeah, I, I suppose I've not looked back. So that was that was the transition. And then um, I was obviously new golf and no golf like the back of my hand. So I was working heavily in golf. But as a sports psychologist, you can work across sports. So you can work in any sport. Um, but there is something about knowing quite a bit about the sport, you know, having knowledge about the sport that you're working in. It's not essential. Um, and there can be a lot of advantages as a sports psychologist not knowing about the sport you're working in because it's really not your job to. And if you stand in front of a group of players and you say, look, I'm not here to tell you how to play football. That's not my job. You've got plenty of people around you to do that. My job, my passion is high performance uh, mindsets in, in sport and, and welfare and well-being and these kind of things. That's what I can help you with. That can be quite a powerful thing. However, however, there's a caveat there. As a consultant, I do think there's an element of the efficacy of your practice. So the abilities, the, 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 the confidence of your practice and the abilities of your practice are mediated by knowledge of the sport. And so about 15 years ago, I actually, I decided that look, I can specialize in golf. I can work in all sports, but I can specialize in golf. And I love to specialize in football. Always been an armchair supporter. Love the game. I'd love to. to. So I got involved at non-league level to learn the language of the sport and learn the specific challenges that players face. And I started to work, uh, yes, I say with non-league level, uh, the sixth division, essentially, which was then called, well, the, there was the Blue Square South and the Blue Square North. So I was working with Fisher Athletic in the Blue Square South with a, a guy called Wayne Burnett, who's now gone on to become, he's un Spurs under 23s coach. So he's worked under Pochettino, he's worked, worked under, still works under Jose Mourinho. So he's he's gone on to do great things. And I had a great season at non-league level, really got to know the language of the game. And as I say, the specific challenges that players face and everything snowballed from there. So that was kind of my transition into sports psychology was I know golf, I can do this. I can work in any sport, but let's also really learn about the language of and the specific challenges that players face in football and build a career that way. And that's what it's been like for 15 years. How, um, just how difficult is it as a, because I think every, well, a lot of, a lot of lads, have a, an opinion of football and how it should be played and how it goes and how it works. And I think if you went around 10 of them in the pub, you'd probably get differences all the way. So how easy is it or how hard is it for you to not blur those lines and to purely come at it from a, a professional point of view? It, it, it's, a re it, it's a really good question. And it's, it's actually, I'm saying it's a really good question and probably slightly you know, maybe inadvertently so because the the interesting dynamic about, let's call it the psychosocial, the psychological and social sides, components, the psychosocial components of, of football are integrated into the technical, tactical and physical sides. 
And I've definitely, and let, let's be honest, let's be open and vulnerable here about this. I've definitely got, got myself into problems over the years where I've, if not so much treaded on toes, I would never do that. And I would never, I mean, I suppose to answer your question straightforwardly, I'd never stand in front of a group of players and say anything about formation or anything like that. However, and this is where integration is is so uh, key in our understanding of psychosocial. You know, a player's mindset, their attention, focus of attention, their intensity and their intent influences team shape, influences mm-hmm. positioning, influences awareness, anticipation, decision making, influences first touch, influences all of these tech, tack, and physical sides. And so, and coming back to what I started there, I was starting to say, I have got myself into problems and I could name some pretty prominent coaches that are household names who have pushed back at me at times and I've had to be careful. But it's, and, and, and you've got to be mindful of your relationship. There's times I've had a relationship with a coach where I've been able to push back and say, yes, fine, but... Let's remember this integrated model. I'm not telling you or or players how to play, but I am reminding you that you can go in from a behavioral, at a behavioral level here and say to a player, well, you're out of position. You need to be in this position. You need to tuck back in. You need, you need to track your mark. You need to do this. But why is this player not doing these things? And the why is complex. The why isn't simple. And this is where football coaching, in my humble opinion, I'm going to get myself into trouble, as I always do here, um, <laughs> has been very one-dimensional uh, one historically. It works. It functions at a behavioral level in terms of do this, do that, be here, be there, be in this position. When this player does that, does this, you've got to do that. And it's like, well, stop. You know, there's a biopsychosocial there are biopsychosocial factors that are influencing that behavior. And that's where coaches can be less efficacious than where they should be, in my opinion. So I have absolutely got myself into trouble on that, but I am unapologetic about that. I'm unapologetic about that because my motivations are not to teach people how to play football, but my motivations are to help coaches and players understand those biological, psychological, and social interplays that drives behavior. And if we want to be the best that we can be, it is simply not good enough. It is simply not good enough just to intervene at a behavioral level. It is unacceptable. And that happens in the Premier League. It is just mind blowing, mind blowing. <laughs> so you're getting more value than you thought you were going to get today here. Um, <laughs> so 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 that's 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 something to emphasize. Um so it is. It's blurred lines. It's, it's blurred lines. But that's where, let me say this word integration, that's where modern day organizations that are nimble and flexible and have great um, processes through their culture enable the manager and the coaches to interact with other auxiliary staff on safe ground. And there's a term for that that we use now in psychology. It's called psychological safety psychological safety and psychological safety is imperative to the organization's success and to me psychological safety a psychologically informed environment 
which means having conversations about the thoughts, the feelings, the experiences and the personalities of players and giving staff psychological safety to express their viewpoints and to admit mistakes is absolutely vital to the success of our organizations. And too often when you go into these organizations, and I'm talking about Premier League, Championship clubs, League One, League Two clubs, there's not the psychological safety. Now, psychological safety comes from Harvard University, comes from the work of Amy Edmondson, who's uh, a researcher uh, in the realm of business. And what she noticed in her research is that so she, she, she predominantly researched medical departments in, uh, in, across the U.S. And she, she had, an, uh, a, 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 I suppose, a strange discovery, which was the most successful departments, medical departments, were the ones that were, were reporting the most mistakes. But as it turns out, when she interpreted the data, the, the qualitative data, um, so the interview data, it turns out that it wasn't that they were making more mistakes. It just they had an environment where they could admit mistakes, talk about those mistakes, come together and find integrated solutions for the problems that they faced day to day. And that tends to, if I may say, not happen um, in uh, adult elite sport. Um, it tends not to be whereby there's these great integrated interdepartmental conversations where the club doctor gets involved, the sports site gets involved, the um, I don't know, the head physio gets involved, the head of sports science. There's a there's a, a conglomeration of conversation where we can all put solutions on the table. We can all talk about the players and find appropriate solutions for that player. That to me is where we should be, where we're not, and where we want the future to be. So, sorry, I went off on one there and a bit of no. A Do you know what? Whilst, whilst you were saying that, first of all, I, I just want to say when when you were talking about the managers questioning why aren't these players doing kind of what I'm saying, mm-hmm. like the why not? Why is this not happening? I don't think I've ever really looked at it that no one really asks that. I think there's a couple of questions, a couple of examples where that m- might have happened, but usually, particularly in like lower league football, they just get bombed out and they, they go out on a free transfer and they go somewhere else because they're not doing the kind of stuff that they should be doing 100%. or they're, be- they're being asked to do. So, it's, and maybe that might be because of the the risks attached down the lower leagues. Maybe they can't can't afford. <laughs> afford to look at that way and give that amount of time because of the short termism possibly um, um i think that yes i think you're probably right but you're 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 correct almost by default because that's that's the wrong term for it. you're 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 probably correct most of the time but yeah. my challenge there is to, to, to those coaches is well I've written three books that has a whole bunch of techniques that you can use to do this in your, your sessions and your activities that you can yeah. use straight away. Now, please let me say, I'm not giving it the big I am. There are plenty of resources out there that coaches can use. They just don't look at it that way. And in part, they don't look at it that way. Whether there's an element of fear, whether it's because psychosocial, that the breadth and the depth to psychosocial, it's, it, 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 there is an element of complexity and there is an element of 
wow, where do I start here? And so the, the, the socio-cultural context is I just start with behavior and I carry on with behavior. And players just have to do what I tell them to do. They just have to show me the behaviors. And there's something quite... Um, uh, I'm going to use a word that's wrong, but let's go with it. It's something quite endearing about uh, and and magnetic about this notion of it's just behavior. Just show me the behavior. Just just show me move from point A to point B and do it with intensity. That's all I want from you. But unfortunately for those coaches, the human system doesn't work that way. Okay, mm-hmm. so the way we work on the pitch, okay, is the game works in seconds. Um, it takes a second to score a goal. It takes a second to complete a pass, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The brain and the nervous system work in milliseconds. So the brain and the nervous system trump football for speed every single time. So this notion of it's a quick, instinctive sport, it's not psychological, is the biggest, bigger, B, biggest load of BS you can possibly come across. We we know that, right? Now, if the brain and nervous system are working in milliseconds. What they're also doing is they're throwing out thoughts and feelings all the time because that's how we've evolved as human beings. We've evolved to scan our environment. We have to, otherwise we wouldn't have survived as a species. We've evolved to scan dangers, threats. We've evolved to um, um, pay attention to threats. We've evolved to think about what's going on in our environment. So that's what's happening to players underneath the surface. So as soon as a player starts to perceive it's not going well here, I'm not playing well, I feel flat, I feel lethargic, how many players will say to me, and I've had this with some of the world's best footballers, say to me, Dan, I just wasn't feeling it today. Oh, man, I just I was warming up. We were doing that rondo. We were doing that keep ball. I just wasn't feeling it. I just wasn't there. Millions of times. Millions. The old adage, if I had a pound, you know, for every time. So so what? this is what coaches aren't appreciating and maybe maybe that's through their educational processes maybe that's because we don't catch them quick enough at say in footballing terms level one and level two fa levels there's not enough on psychosocial there's not enough explaining the biopsychosocial underpinnings of behavior they need to understand our brain and nervous system works in milliseconds it's sending out thoughts and feelings all the time we have a bit of a negativity bias as human beings we have to uh, and so that's what they're doing and it doesn't matter how good a player you are you need to be able to deal with those now there are some players on planet football who have so much skill in their feet that they get away with it but they don't get away with it all the time there may be some examples who do maybe Lionel Messi maybe you know at that level Ronaldo maybe yeah. maybe but I, I, I possibly think if there was something that we could attach to those players that actually indicated a high-performance mindset, we might find them in their low-performance mindset some of the time. Mm. So they need to be able to do it. So, yeah, look, I'm, I'm conscious I'm going on, but absolutely. And there's an, one last thing to say here. There's another element whereby we are, we are heavily socialized in society into outcome and performance into outcome and performance so in in a competitive landscape our language becomes very much geared towards gotta win gotta win gotta win gotta win gotta perform gotta perform gotta perform gotta perform and guys i promise you now the vast majority of my consultancy practice even with the very best players largely revolves around helping them get away from the got to win, got to win, got to win, got to perform, got to perform, got to perform narrative onto more mindset and process 
uh, related tasks that they can, that are more specific, that are more controllable, um, that are within their grasp, rather than got to win, got to win, got to win, got to perform, got to perform, got to perform, because those are your sources of stress. So there's yeah. a lot of dynamics there. There's a big interplay there. Absolutely. So I just want to give you two um, sportsmen who uh, Danny's going to be annoyed because one of them is a cricketer, um, but one of them is a footballer. So I just want to try and see if we could. I just want to ask you what you would kind of do after these situations have happened to these sportsmen. So the first one I'll go with is Ben Stokes um, in the 2016 World Cup final. I think he got hit for four sixes in, in the last over and England lost the World Cup final. And then I think we'll go with 2018. You've got Carrius in the Champions League final. And it's just fun. Obviously, he had, a, he had a couple of howlers, but it's just funny how you've mentioned, you know, the way we see it as well as they've got to perform and win all the time. And I think that the difference from cricket was Ben Stokes was kind of left alone after a couple of days to Carrius, who got bombed out and went to Turkey because he wasn't really accepted to go and play again at Liverpool. I think he played a pre-season friendly against Tramia, and that was it. Um, and conceded a pretty bad goal there as well. But I just wonder, just for people listening, how would you kind of go about that situation? Because obviously Ben Stokes has come back into the 2019 World Cup final and performed at one of the highest levels, I think, anyone's ever seen. In terms of cricket and possibly in terms of sport, he obviously did it the other day as well um, in the test match. But I just wonder how how you how would you get that player back to that point where he can go? I can go and win this. I'll stick you on my shoulders. Let's go. Okay, so I'm going to answer your question, uh, and I'm going to do with it it within the frame of being an ethical sports psychologist, and say I'm going to close my ears to the two players that you've mentioned, and we're going to talk about failure in cricket and in in a in a dramatic final and how to deal with that, and failure as a goalkeeper and and how to deal with that. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, because I just have to be very careful because rule number one is never assume anything and I don't know those players and I don't know their their specific circumstances and that's an important point to make because you've got to be robust as a sports psychologist each in each case is going to be unique of course you can have some generic assumptions of course you can have some generic techniques but 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 let let let, I have to be careful first and foremost um I I think so so let me answer it in a, in a generic fashion. So what's really important, first and foremost, is the environment, the coaches in the environment, um, and fellow players as well. So um, as a sports psychologist, if I'm embedded within that organization, um, I'm, I'm certainly, I'm hoping that we've created an environment, first of all, um, that um, um, accepts failure and has set up, has put processes in place to deal with failure, which includes every single player having a mental skills framework in place. I'm a big advocate of that, that every single player needs some mental techniques um, within a mental skills framework that they can use to help them get into their high performance mindset, whatever that looks like, 
to shift away from a low performance mindset um, to give them the best possible chance to perform to the best of their ability uh, and to deal, yeah, to get away from their low performance mindset. So to deal with failure. So I would be hoping that if I'm embedded within that organization, that uh, a, a cricketer in the final would have a pretty strong mental skills framework that helps him or her have a process in place should failure happen. And like anything else, if you're talking about an extreme situation, that mental skills framework, you know, negative thoughts and feelings and emotions are very strong. And that, that, that mental skills framework can go out the window when extreme things happen. Yeah. Um, but I would want that in place. I would hope that that's in place. Um, as part of that, I would hope that, um, that, that that mental skills framework would be shared amongst players. That there would be, it, it, in psychology, we call it, we call it a shared mental model. So there is some sharing of that. And again, if, if I just briefly go back onto football or rugby or anything like that, that tends not to happen. It happens with the game model. It happens with pattern and shape work and things like that. So again, the, 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 the tactical side, but it doesn't happen so much on the mental side or it doesn't happen at all. That would be something where I would be saying, I want every player having a mental skills framework and I would want every player sharing their mental skills framework. In that case, you know, they can help each other. So there's somebody there to help that cricketer in that circumstance to say, hey, remember your trigger word or, or th th there's just behaviors involved that are helping that player. It might not work in that moment. That's the reality of elite sports. But then we've got something in place. We've got a, a plan in place. I would then say uh, from a, an environment, I would be looking, and I've mentioned this term before, a psychologically informed environment. So after that game, I'd want to be able to um, sit down with the coaches and maybe I would drive uh, or maybe the head coach would drive a psychologically informed conversation. So we'd be talking about that player and maybe how, you know, the best approach that we can have for that player. And I dare say that goes on, but in a psychologically informed environment, I would, if again, if I'm embedded in that organization, there's been some upskilling there. You know, the, 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 I would like to think the yeah. coach would know a little bit more about personality science. They'd, they'd have a, a, mental, uh, a mental framework in place like motivational interviewing or rational motive behavior therapy or something like that to be able to help that player. And then we might also, given if it's an extreme circumstance, you know, where if, we, if we're using a, men, a motivational interviewing framework or a rational motive behavior therapy framework or something like that, then we can get onto the welfare and well-being piece. That's a big part of the psychologically informed environment. So that's absolutely vital. And we might find a way to include and incorporate that player within our conversation, you know, if, if, if that, is, that is possible. Again, it would depend on the circumstance. It would depend on who that player is. So I'm really going to come back to the answer here lies in mental skills frameworks, shared mental skills frameworks, psychologically informed environments, uh, psychological safety. These kind of things are vital to help those kind of to help with those kind of circumstances. Does that guarantee that there's going to be a, a happy and pleasant and optimal outcome? Of course it doesn't. But in my opinion, 
it, 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 there's a better opportunity for that to happen. When you were talking about uh, biopsychosocial factors, one of the, the mm. topics that's come up a few times in different interviews that we've had is around like personality types and stuff in football. And you were talking about there about managers and coaches maybe not asking why people aren't doing things. Do you think that's potentially why football and probably more broadly with professional sports in general doesn't attract more different types of personalities that you almost have to fit into a a more narrow personality type to be able to succeed? That's a really, really good question. I would say that the answer there is multidimensional because rather than unidimensional, which you're alluding to as in one factor making the difference, because I definitely think there are players who wouldn't fit into a, a certain mould, a certain uh, personality trait. I wouldn't use the word type, but trait, a bunch of traits, a cluster of traits that drive the kind of behaviours that we might want to see or we might, we're used to seeing. Um, but they get away with it because they've got great ability. They get away with it because they've got great ability. And and how often you see this at clubs is that some, and that's where coaches can really be challenged by players who have great ability, but they'll label them as difficult players. So, you know, you, you've used the term personality type. I would use the term personality trait because there's more of a, a scientific basis to traits. So di- um, let, let's go with difficult in inverted commas. Difficult players tend to be low agreeable. Agreeableness is one of five, one of the big five personality traits. Low agreeable people um, like know their own mind. They're very straightforward. They don't necessarily trust the advice of others. They're not necessarily very altruistic. So they can be quite selfish in their behaviors. Um, there is a genetic link um, to low agreeableness um, uh, uh, as, as well as that dynamic interacting with how they've grown up. And so you're going to see certain behaviors revolving around what I've said there. And they get labeled, let's say, by coaches as difficult players. And that that makes a difference. But you've got to be able to negotiate that. You've got to be able to uh, um, you've got to be able to manage that player. And I think the first thing we the first thing we need is better conversations around that. It's simply not good enough just to say, oh, well, this player is difficult. I don't mind that label, actually. I don't mind sitting with coaches and coaches say this player's difficult. Great. That's a, that, that, that's an opener. For me as a psychologist, I'm there now to say, okay, we're not going to personality test this person. We're not going to put a, an, a like gold, standard, gold standard personality test is an NEO, right? We're not going to do that. But what we can do is, as a psychologist, I can tell you that the behaviors you're talking about fits in with being low agreeable. What we pretty much know about low agreeable players is we probably don't want to tell that person what to do. We probably won't coach that player in a traditional manner. We'll probably help that player to coach him or herself. Uh, We'll probably make suggestions. We'll probably ask them to come up with their own solutions and find ways to support them when they're trying out those solutions. Um, Those little suggestions I've made there are the kinds of ways you might negotiate with difficult players, difficult in inverted commas, or low agreeable players. 
You've also got players who might be low conscientious, so they're not very orderly. They might not turn up on time. They're a little bit disorganized. They're a bit disheveled. Um, they don't come into their video analysis meeting uh, on time. Um, they've forgotten it. Again, you've got to be able to have um, the wherewithal or the skills to be able to upskill that player and all create an environment that helps accommodate that player, especially if that player is really good especially if that player is really good. And that's happening all the time behind the scenes is a lot of these players that leave clubs, big players as well, are often really skillful in their feet. Very, very good players, wonderful vision, awareness, et cetera, et cetera. But they're challenging people for one reason or other. And coaching staff don't necessarily uh, know ways um, to be able to accommodate that player within their environment i'm not saying it's easy and i'm also not saying it's always possible to do there are some players who are who lie on the margins of traits where they simply can potentially they simply cannot be in that environment and that's okay we've just got to get to a position where we simply say we can't do any more um, but until that i think we've got to be able to stretch ourselves to find the solutions in that in that circumstance does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, that makes perfect sense, Dan. What, what my my my, um, my dad's got a theory about the uh, about this type of thing where he he often wonders if it's players who who are often described as difficult. He wonders if they're it's people who are more creative that find it difficult in that environment because it's doesn't almost encourage you to be creative if you know what I mean. That it's all very structured and following orders and being, you know, very like militaristic. And he wonders if, if you've got your brain kind of is creative in terms of creating things all the time. Mm -hmm. You might overthink things. You might kind of question stuff. You might start it. And then that makes it less easy for you to follow instructions because you're thinking of other things. Your dad's a very wise man. He should be a psychologist. So <laughs> what to, to give some scientific underpinning, and I love things like that because it just demonstrates you don't have to go through the years of study. And, and absolutely, the science suggests, I'm not going to say it's 100% says exactly that because we can't say that, but it suggests that people who um, test high open, so it's openness to experience. So we've got five five traits. We've got conscientiousness, neuroticism, extroversion, agreeableness, and uh, openness to experience. So he's talking about high openness to experience there. And what the science suggests is people that test high see the world differently from people who test low. People who test low, to, the, 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 the players I can be challenged with um, at clubs aren't just the low agreeable ones, but they can also be the low low open ones the ones who are very straightforward i know what i like and i like what i say i, I love I, they love routine they love lines and borders as you said there and there's an interesting thing trying to stay on topic but going slightly off topic is that um the research suggests that people who are slightly more low open on personality tests tend to be more conservative in their voting practice so think, and this is a very generic broad brush statement and not very nuanced. So, so please accept that for what I'm saying. Let's think of Donald Trump 
a wall with Mexico. Let's think about all the Republicans who might vote for that. That feels comforting to them, lines, borders. Um, Those people may tend tend to test more low open than high open. They like lines. They like borders. Now, when, when we have somebody who is high open, who sees literally testing shows that they see the world differently, the Picassos at the extreme versions. And I can think of some players in environments I've worked in, in both rugby and football with this, is they just see the world differently. They see cues and clues on the pitch and triggers that others don't see. And they see shapes and patterns, man, ball, uh, space, that emerge and dissolve, and they're seeing bigger bits of space that's emerging and dissolving, and they utilize it straight away. And and it's like coaches will tell them something, and they're going, no, because that's not what I'm seeing. And that's where you've got to be very, very careful as a coach, because most coaches coach about the game rather than in the game. They coach about the game rather than in the game. So they sit there with a screen in front of them and they're saying, well, you're in this position and that player's in that position and you should be here. And that player's going, no, that's not what it looks like on the pitch to me. I'm seeing multiple things here. I can't be in that position because I'm seeing this over here and that over there. They have a different world of experience. And if in many respects, it's great coaching is direction of attention. It's asking players, when you did that, what did you see there? Why did you, what did you see to make you make that decision? That's how you coach creative players. You don't create coach creative players by telling them what to do. You coach creative players by starting to understand what they're placing their attention on and what they're experiencing. You strive to, 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 to learn that and then challenge them from there. Well, you saw that you made that decision. Could you have made this decision? What, are, what other options did you have? What other options did you have? Which is a divergent question. You're not telling them what to do. You're not thinking you haven't got a solution yourself. You're asking them for their own solutions. They were, as you say, as your dad says, open. They're open completely. So uh, absolutely spot on. Absolutely spot on. And it's, it's, it's enormous. That topic is enormous. An enormous topic in skill acquisition. The coaches get that wrong all the time because they're just telling players what to do. And there's a lot of players out there who see the world different, who see the game differently to them. And you can't. And I tell you what, you got me off on one here. I tell <laughs> you what, that's where actually the coaches who you don't think are going to be successful, and I won't name names because it's not fair, maybe in, in inverted commas, your old school managers can be successful because they don't overly engage. They don't overcoach. Mm. And that's a very interesting dynamic. It's a very interesting dynamic for me because I'm passionate about coaching. But coaching coaching works on lots of levels and lots of layers. Coaching is about being a servant as much as it is about being autocratic or telling players what to do. That's where Gareth Southgate's been very, very good, more of a servant leader. Uh, and so that's where you, you, you can, when I say old school manager, you will get some faces in your mind. You'll get some names. That's where they can be very successful because they don't overcoach. They don't get in players' ways, in a player's way. And that's very interesting because sometimes players flourish like that. I'm working, very fortunate to work with one player at the moment who is regarded as 
you know, one of the most skillful players in the Premier League. And when he said he loved working for a certain manager, my jaw dropped. But it was because that manager told him what he wanted to do him to do from a responsibility perspective, gave him some borders, but gave him by and large gave him very few boundaries, but some borders, but gave him a lot of openness and then didn't get involved with his game at all. Like didn't coach him at all. And that was very that done is to do with sorry to drop to think yeah. some of that is like trust. So like a player feels like he's if they're not getting overcoached, they feel like they're trusted to express themselves almost, which gives them the confidence to do so. I think it's 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 certainly two things. It's possibly more, but it's exactly what you're saying now. I think that that is absolutely correct. But I also think it's it comes back to those players are see th- seeing things the coach can't see, and therefore they've got the freedom to see those things now and act upon them. And it's very frustrating and causes a lot of anxiety for players of that caliber, um, of that creativity to not act on what they see. Right. Um, so, so actually you're, you're lessening their anxiety in many respects by not getting too involved, but it's, it's that's tough for coaches. That's, that's really, really, really hard. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, what do we got? I, I don't know how Bielsa coaches. I've never, I've never worked with Bielsa. I've heard bits and pieces, but you know, he has a structure. He has a way of doing things, and I, I, I think he is quite top down with his coaching. So, you know, that would counter some of the things I've said there. You know, um, or not? Who knows? You know, uh, he hasn't been at a club for ten years. We, we just don't know. So, it, it's, it's a thoroughly interesting and, and dynamic in, uh, scenario. Yeah, when you were to, my mind instantly went to um, Adel Tarapt at QPR when Neil <laughs> Warnock was the manager. That was what I, I was there. In, I was in, there. I was I was working in the academy there. So would that would that type of dynamic have, have applied at that time then? Because he was he's obviously a what has been, would be described as a difficult player, maybe a loose cannon, somebody who doesn't follow instructions. And Neil Warnock is classically what you would probably stereotype as an old school manager. But he seems like the type of person who would just say to him, everybody else just do this so he can do things that none of you can do kind of thing. I don't know what inter. I mean, I was with the under 21s and the 18s. So I don't know what the interactions were. I do know that he was very influential in the championship season where they went up. Uh, and then obviously Neil Warnock lost his job a couple of months into um, into that season. So it, it, I, I feel that our example there, your example there fits what we've been saying. I have a feeling. I'm not saying going to say that's 100% true because I don't 100% know. Um, but, um, uh, I mean, I'll give you a working example, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying, I mean, when I was at Derby County for a little bit and Harry Redknapp was uh, mentoring uh, Darren Wassell, um, who was the caretaker manager, and we had a winger um whose name slips past me right now, who's very quick, very dynamic, very skillful, uh, but very flair, you know, very could lose the ball. And Harry was just like, God, this guy's a game changer. This guy's a game changer. And I'm saying that as somebody who's not an expert on football, I'm just what I experienced in that environment and I feel comfortable sharing that. Um, It's... So yeah, I think that's that's interesting. I'm not saying Harry Redknapp is old school. I'm, I think there's lots of new school about him, but um, 
So I think, I certainly think Adel Tarapt at that time, that may be a very good demonstration of that um, uh, at that time. Um, but players are very dynamic. You know, they're, they're, they've got that, but they've also got a temperamental edge as well. And I think Adele, uh, at a guess, was quite temperamental as well. So there was that that maybe he could Yeah, lots of different things at play, I suppose. Yeah, no. yeah there are. As a young person, I was quite a good footballer. Mm. Um, played for an academy and I played semi-pro when I was a little bit younger as well. And and for a long time, a lot of my personality was linked to the fact that oh, I'm, everyone that I knew knew me as, you know, get ready to turn up for your team and you'll probably win. You know, that type of thing. Mm. So my, a lot of my personality, I felt, was linked to being good at football, which I found really difficult to reconcile with when I got a little bit older and realised there wasn't going to be a footballer and trying to kind of accept those things. So what, what I was kind of thinking there was for players like that who almost, they see the picture of the game in a different way to how most people see it, I would imagine then that being a footballer is maybe more intrinsically linked to their personality. So how do, how do you, when you're dealing with people who are struggling with that, you know, I, I'm so-and-so the footballer, which I imagine comes up a lot during retirement processes and stuff. Mm. How how do you, how do you like break that cycle? How do you, what type of things do you do with players to kind of almost give them that sense of their own way? Look, it's a really, really good question, and 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 there's lots of directions you you can you can take it take it in, and obviously every in, every case is going to be unique and individual. Um, I think if I mean certainly if we're talking about career transitions, and you're talking you're probably talking about what we would call a motivated agent in that scenario. So somebody who's who's come in sitting sitting in front of you knows their career is about to end, and um, would be would like to and would be willing to explore this area which which is no moot point because you know if you're dealing it's really really interesting i'll come back to what i was saying because i mean i was you know reading a twitter conversation today amongst sports psychologists and they're contemporaries really good people great at what they do and they were talking about welfare and well-being and they will work with the Olympic teams and, as I say, excellent what they do. Um, and talking about the well-being piece being the most, you know, that it's, we've really got to turn up the volume and it's well-being with performance, possibly more so than performance with well-being. Maybe I might be doing them a disservice there, but well-being was very much at the forefront, which I, I absolutely don't deny and I think it's really important. But when you're an 18-year-old potential Olympian, there isn't a cat's hell in chance that you probably there's not a cat's hell in chance that you want to have a conversation around identity. Probably, possibly. There are probably going to be athletes out there who will want to, but many don't. I wouldn't have wanted to. For me, it was just like, I'm a 16-year-old. I'm going to be a pro golfer. That's what I do. And that felt comfortable to me. You're not shifting me from that. And I think that gets... I. I didn't want to challenge on Twitter because it's just the wrong platform. I've learned many, many times over the years to, to, to challenge. But I, if I was in a room with him, I'd be saying, yes, but when I'm 16 and I've got this ambition, I want to win the gold medal. I want to be this footballer. And, and I, Dan, you can come back at me and tell me your experience. If, if you had a sports psychologist plonk him or herself in front of you when you were 14, 15, 16 and started talking about, well, we've got to talk about you having multiple shirts, multiple identities. Um, 
because that's great for your well-being. And I'm, 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 I'm talking about that in a very crass manner. I'm not necessarily saying that that's how one would address it, but that would be the underlying theme that I'm not necessarily sure a lot of 14, 15, 16-year-olds want to listen. So I'm not too sure that it's always successful. If you've got somebody, and you can come back at me down in a sec, um, if you've got somebody who's 32, 33 and going into a career, career transition, um, that's different. And, you know, it's really just, it's, it, it's a narrative identity. So one of the world's leading personality psychologists is a guy called Dan McAdams, works at Northwestern University in Chicago. And he talks about three levels to personality. So we've got the trait level. Okay, that I talked about earlier, the five traits, you've got something called characteristic adaptations. So from the age of six years old, you start to become motivated, you start to have motivations, you start to learn about the world around you. You're six, seven, eight years old, and you start to learn that your mate over there uh, wants your pencil or wants your pencil case and, you know, or wants to go and do this or wants to win that game or whatever. And you start to, you start to cooperate and compete in your world. It's it, it's the I think it's actually the five to eight shift it's called, so that's being a motivation agent. And then as you become a teenager, you start to create a narrative identity that smothers and smooths out your your traits. So narrative identity is that 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 inner story you have about yourself, your game, where you've been with your game. If we're talking about football here, where you are now, where you want to be. So that's where your identity. I want to be a pro footballer. Hey, I'm going to play for Tranmere. I'm going to play for Liverpool. Whatever it is, you know, I'm going to be. I'm going to play for England one day. This is who I am. I love this. I love the game, and and you know that that story becomes who you are. So what you're trying to do at 31 years old is open up a discourse, a dialogue where you can help play, help people to flex that narrative, to broaden that narrative. You know, to start thinking about, well, in very simple terms, what other, you know, who are you? What other identities are you? What are you interested? What do you want to be engaged in? You know, what does, if you're enjoying retirement and doing something else, what does that look like? And start, start to sketch out that future self, essentially, so you can start to shift or broaden that narrative lessen the anxiety and, and, and start to explore, well, what behaviors do you have to engage in to move forward, you know, to start to self-actualize, I suppose, or continue to self-actualize. So, so that would be a very broad brush answer, I know, but that's the kind of, it's, it's broadening narratives, broadening stories. And you, hey, you're doing that with performance and players as it is. But th that's to me how you identities but i'd be interested to hear from you dan i mean any comment you've got on what i've said there but also would you have really wanted maybe you would have engaged with a sports psych at 14 15 i bet you were hell-bent on a, a career in, in soccer in football would you do you know what it is dan i think for me mm. a lot of it was kind of it what it, it, it never i i always remember being about 13 mm. and we were coming back from from training we're in the back of me, me, me mate's mum's car. This was just like our, like, um, like our local junior team. Yeah. yeah. We were in the, the car on the way back, and we were just talking like, um, oh yeah, but you know, on Sunday we're playing knees and like, oh, you know, like just like football chat. Yeah. And and the lad's mum said something along the lines of, um, oh yeah, but I don't know why you're getting so worried about it. Cause it's not like your knees are going to be professional, are you? 
And I just always remember, but like, I don't think I'd ever thought about it consciously until about that point. Okay. And then all of a sudden, it just became like this thing where I was like, I wasn't just playing because I quite liked going and playing football with my mates. Mm. You were playing because there might be like, you know, you were good or bad at something. Like I can, I can remember almost like the 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 moments I rem- I worked out that I was better than the other people there, and that then put a pressure on it, if you know what I mean. So I think at that point it, it became less enjoyable. And yeah. I think it, 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 it instantly, as soon as you get to that point where you, where, because it's like, even now, like I'd turn up playing Monday night football with, with, with a group of mates. And if I have a, uh, if I don't have a good game or I miss a chance or do something, I genuinely do think about it for a week. And I just think, but then when you tell yourself, it's mad that it proper doesn't matter. I like it. And you think, it's it's it just seems really mad. I mean, I'm 27 years old now, and I, it it just is one of those odd things. I feel like I don't know if how I would have been receptive to it when I was a bit younger, but it kind of I just feel like it it became like one of those things that is like you can always fall back on something because it's like a tangible thing that stands you apart from other people. So it yeah. like it yeah. can kind of supersede your need to have a personality because. You you know don't 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 worry if they don't like this part of you because they'll always like you because of this and then it kind of it 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 becomes a big focal point of your thinking. Yeah, and 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 Dan, as you I mean, look first of all as you're talking now, I'm thinking we need to do a session, mate. Uh, I'll send you my price list. <laughs> um, just joking. Uh, yeah, as you're talking now, I, I mean, I, I suppose you know when you're when when you're doing these kind of podcasts you know you're 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 having this two two way interaction or three way interaction and you, and you dive into a question you go in launching in one direction and maybe what I, what I, what I definitely want to be clear on please don't get me wrong and perhaps I was being a little bit um of an agitator a contrarian um i i the challenging onus is on parents and coaches and it's on parents. I, I do field, I, I certainly have a lot of emails coming through. My nine-year-old wants to be a Premier League player. Um, and um, I wouldn't engage with that. And if I do, then I would be saying, well, I need to be doing a session with you, Mr. Mrs. Whoever. Yeah. Because, um, uh, so um, it's, for me, um, the challenge of parent parenting is, you know, the world's hardest job and all that. And 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 the challenge is to try to help your child navigate through um, the experiences that they face. And you talked about an experience there, and it it suddenly changes your perception of the situation and what something means to you. Uh, narrative and meaning. Whenever I'm asked, what are the two most important words for you as a psychologist? Narrative and meaning tend to be the top two. Um, so you've created a narrative there and, and it's, and it's changed your meaning or that person who said, well, it's not like you're going to be a pro and suddenly even that's gone, gone into your head and that's created a narrative and that's changed the meaning of the game. And it's, it's hard. It's, it's almost impossible for parents to get it completely right. I think where we are now in sports psychology and sports science and coaching pedagogy is trying to help coaches navigate that, trying to help coaches of under nines, tens, elevens, twelves, thirteens, fourteens, be more um, um, create environments and cultures that do exactly what you said, which is let's just let them have fun. Let's let them have fun. Let's let's support them. 
Um, let's in engage them in deliberate play, some deliberate practice, find the best ways to stretch them if that's what we want to do um, and help them love the game. Um, this is kids, of course, and and so on and so forth, which is a whole other podcast in and of itself. <laughs> um, but but giving them more autonomy, you know, and and and, and stuff. Um, and there's not enough of that. We we all need to be better at doing that. So let me be clear about that. That that that's important to say. Uh, so so yeah, it's uh it's, it's a complex world. Dan, just on um, just on Danny's story there. Hmm. If he turned around and said, I'm really good at maths, um, I want to be a mathematician. Mm. I guarantee, personally, I think I can guarantee you the, the parents in that car would have gone, that's a really good idea, that. <laughs> Whereas as soon as you mention sports, they go, nah, no chance. You're dreaming, absolutely dreaming. But if you want to be anything that's kind of considered more realistic, no matter how hard it is, because it's got the link of sport to it, they go, nah, that's that's not for you. That you can't do that. Only only the special ones can do that. We can look at that two ways. We can we can look at the the, the love that a parent has for their child and the, the the concern they might have for somebody saying, I want to do this in the future, and you know you know the reality is it's harder it, it's harder than being you know whatever other profession that you might think about because the odds are heavily stacked against you. Um, so one can look at, interpret it that way. I just think it comes down, if I may say, to parenting skill. And, you know, being a parent doesn't, doesn't come with a manual. I mean, some people choose to purchase manuals and, and learn, um, <laughs> but it doesn't come with a manual. So I, I think we have to be fair on parents. I think that, I think in no circumstances, what I would always say as a, as a sports psychologist, but somebody who has interest in developmental and psychology and personality sciences that's where it's really uh, important as a parent to be curious about what your child has said you know oh football, awesome you know it, it's it's if you're going to make a statement it's, oh, it's awesome to have dreams fantastic tell me about that what what do you think that involves what do you think uh uh, what do you, what do you think um you have to do right now to give yourself the best opportunity to be a uh, a, a footballer talk to me about that and just be curious just be curious you know you don't have to go out and get the f latest nike boots you don't have to go out and phone up you know the person who's the best trainer in the world locally um just because your kids said that you know kids say things and it's 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 like pay attention to that um support it uh, ask questions, be curious. And I think part of that question, questioning, you know, eventually has to uh, ask, you know, the questions about the challenges involved with that. Uh, again, it just depends on age. But, I, you know, I agree with you. And I think part of being enthusiastic, part of being a, um, an authoritative parent, not authoritarian, but authoritative, is... Um, being supportive and giving your child autonomy, giving them guidelines and rules and helping them establish norms and behaviors, absolutely. Um, but giving them the freedom to explore and to make different choices and have different experiences. Um, obviously, different families have different resources to be able to help their children have that. That's just life in the way of the world uh, but certainly with football you don't need many resources which is great so great awesome love that 
going to support you. But that support doesn't need to look like I'm going to spend £5,000 a week on getting Kenny Dalgleish into, you know, train one-to-one. Ridiculous <laughs> football I've brought up there just came to, into my mind. But that, it, it can just look, I'm going to be curious. I'm going to support where I can and, and just keep an eye on where my child goes with this. That's what I'd say. You, you were talking there about... Um well-being with performance rather than performance with well-being that kind of crossover yeah one one thing that i uh, often wonder with with professional sport and, and when we talk a lot about you know we've t- we've spoken to a lot of players who've said um players maybe you played a, a while ago who've said or oh, maybe if i had access to a sports psychologist this might have been better or this aspect of my career might be better or other players said yeah they sent me to the sports psychologist and this what happened I, I, you were talking at the beginning about how a lot of what you do is is performance based as opposed to say mental health based. Do you think there's an issue with sport in its understanding of the differences between, say, mental health and mentality, so to speak? Yes, a hundred percent. It's a massive problem. Uh, it almost gets to the heart of what's going on in global sport from a psychological perspective at the moment, or it, it, it's interest in sports psychology. And it's a big problem in North America at the moment because what the NFL are doing and the NBA, as far as I'm aware, and I've got pretty strong contacts out there, is there. Um, obviously they work on a franchise system so their franchises have to have an only nfl they've got to have a mental health practitioner um who's fully registered and qualified great six i think it's six to eight hours a week i might be wrong about the week but it's six 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 to eight hours um but that practitioner doesn't have to have any skills or expertise in the traditional sort of performance side of sports psychology um so it's getting quite diluted there um and over here there's no such rules or regulations but there's starting to be a little bit a little bit of a creep towards um oh we can just have a clinical psychologist here and that will do us there and that's great and the rest can be taken care of by the coaches which i just think is blatantly wrong however at the time we're speaking yesterday i believe it was announced by brighton very forward-thinking, Dan Ashworth at the helm there. They brought in uh, James Bell, who's a very good sports psych, to head up a performance psychology and well-being department, which possibly is the kind of future that we might have. And coming back to your, your question and my sort of vociferous answer in saying yes, is that in very, very simple terms, uh, it, it absolutely gets conflated. And, and I get this on, on Twitter. I talk about, you know, we, you know, coaches have to put psychosocial first. And when I'm writing that, what's not going on in my head is coaches have to put psychosocial first because welfare and well-being and mental health are, 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 are vital, which they are. I'm not denying they're not. What's going on in my head is skill acquisition, mental skills training, um, stretch and support in activities, um, asking the right questions, blah, 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 is going on in my head alongside other things. But I get somebody coming back at me and going, yeah, Dan, mental health is the most important thing and blah, blah, blah. And, and it's like okay, yes, it's really important, but you're misunderstanding me. That's not what I'm saying. That's not why psychosocial should be put first or the only reason. So my very, very simple sort of image I would want your, your you guys and the audience to, to, to take away with is, look, by and large, sports psychology works on three levels. 
Um, at the very uh, above the surface would be the performance psychology piece. Okay, which I think I, I would actually put above the surface in green, the green light, if you like, where I think a lot of things can be shared across the organization. That's the, the psychologically informed environment, the psychological safety, the sharing of mental skills frameworks, all this hush hush. I'm seeing a sports psych because I don't have a lot of confidence on the pitch or I'm just being distracted or the teamwork, whatever it is. It's just like, come on. I mean, that's not an embarrassing thing. We're just trying to be the best that we can be. So uh, to me, it's in the green. To me, it's a completely integrated process. We're going going back to our first thing that we talked about. And and to me, that covers the individual uh, performance. It covers the team performance. It covers coaching. It covers um, uh, training. It covers organization, inter and intra-departmental uh, culture, communication, environment, et cetera, et cetera. So it covers all of that stuff. And I've probably missed a few things out there, skill acquisition and coaching science. So that's above. I think underneath the line in the middle, which I would put in amber, that's the welfare and well-being piece. And that's where, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk about what is well-being? What does that look like? What is, what is ill-being? Are well-being and ill-being on the same continuum? Are they on different continuums? You know, how does well-being and ill-being interact with performance psychology? I get a lot of players come to me and it becomes palpably obvious if I can help them actually on the pitch, actually, that's if I can help them uh, have a structure to their training and on the pitch, they're going to be a lot happier uh, in and of themselves, and it, and it, and it, and it's not obvious that it's a well-being strategy. It's kind of a drip feed down from the performance piece from above. So the welfare and the well-being, and I, and I think there can be some sharing here. You know, let's let's have some vulnerability in the organisation. I often, t- as a um, uh, exploratory sort of antagonist tweet, uh, certainly against the motivational gurus are out there um, who. do a great job a lot of the time in what they've got to offer and what they do i'll say tear down your motivational posters and actually put up posters that um celebrate the negative thoughts that we have that inform each other of let's do a group meeting and let's come out into the open what negative thoughts and feelings we have in and around a game or in and around our training let's share let's be vulnerable here because actually if we share that we put that up on the wall we adorn that that's there we know that's there and we can work together as long as we're putting interventions in place as long as we're putting in either strategies or, or or psychological safety within the environment that that's a different very different way the very different way of looking at these kind of high performance environments but it's not an incorrect way and it could be a very adaptive way rather than this what feels to me at times is very maladaptive you know punch the air we can achieve anything and which comes with that burden of well we're just going to ignore any negatives there's no room and space in a lot of these organizations for vulnerability there's no room and no space for admitting anxieties or, or whatever they might be, for having these important conversations. And when they have these important conversations, then we give ourselves a better opportunity, in my opinion. So I actually think that that welfare and well-being piece is in amber because there's going to be times when a player comes to me or goes to a coach and wants to have a confidential conversation. 
you know. But there's times when a player comes to me and says, I want this to be confidential. And I might might at some stage stage, stage say to them, start addressing this notion of that it might be useful to find a key ally on the coaching staff here. Or it might be that the manager should be a key ally here, you know, given whatever it is that we might be talking about. But we have a conversation about that. So it's in amber. And then at the very bottom, we've got the mental health piece, which is in the red. And look, as a sports psychologist, I have counselling qualifications. I, I have a keen inter- interest in counselling. But if somebody is severely depressed, if they have a personality disorder, uh, maybe on the very margins of personality traits or something like that, I would have to uh, uh, hand them over to uh, a clinical psychologist. So ideally, you want an organisation who has that uh, form of support uh, where needed. Um, and that's very much in the, in, in the red for me. That's 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 not shared, and it's if it's a conversation, it's between manager and say head of medical and the sports psych, leading on to a clinical psychologist or something like that. It's there's very few key stakeholders who have any kind of information with regard to this. So it's those three levels. Coming back to your question, Dan, to finish off here, it's those three levels. We've got to, in my opinion, in a very sim- simplistic image, recognize these three levels and support these three, three levels where we can. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as, as we did. Ryan, what did you kind of take away? What your biggest sort of learning points from, from Dan's interview? Um, well, listening back, I remember being devastated not to make the call and when you do listen back it doesn't help because I think Dan was literally everything you'd want more really for, from a guest and somebody who has such um, unique skills in, in that field as well I think Dan's biggest skill um, is he takes these like complex situations and describes them in a way that become clear and you can see why he's such like so well respected in his field as the message becomes so easy to understand, which I think is a gift. And there was a part where um, I think Ant asked him about a youth football wanting to become a Premier League player. And he put it as narrative and meaning. So you've changed the narrative, so now you've changed the meaning, which I think we've tried to describe that situation of youth football quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And he somehow managed to sum it up in three words, which just made so much sense that you've taken a child and now you've put him in a setting that needs to be professional and, and has an end goal rather than having a child that is just playing football for the fun of it. Um, but in terms of skills or something I learned from it that I can maybe take away, which I thought was very interesting, both both to use in a work setting, but also in a personal setting, was he said about building failure mindset into your skill set. And I think he also referenced an example of a lady from Harvard who highlighted a group that admitted the most mis- um, the group that admitted the most mistakes had the better outcome. And yeah. it wasn't even that they were making more mistakes than anybody else. It was just the fact that they they were all both open-minded and created an environment that welcomed failure so that they could improve moving forward. And I think that's a very good way of looking at it. And people see the word failure and assume, well, you failed, so you've already missed your goal or missed your target when it's not really seen as that way. He sort of describes it as just part of the process of getting something right, almost, and that yeah. that forms the makeup of, of the outcome in the end. And I just thought that was that was really interesting and, and something you can technically apply elsewhere. I mean, you see a lot of these sort of self-help videos or these motivation videos on YouTube with like Denzel Washington's voice in the background and this music. And some of them can be helpful and fun to watch, but I think 
the words have got to have substance and, and you've got to have a, a, an almost like a framework to work from. And what I loved about it was just exactly how he showed you how to build that framework and what, what needs to become a part of that framework and failure very much plays a part in that. Yeah, 100%. I think it was a team at a hospital, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Like, like a, a, a certain, certain part of the hospital. It's interesting that you mentioned that, actually, because I clipped that bit of the episode and sent it to my um, I sent it to my boss at work because we've been having conversations recently about that very thing, about how do we, you know, better cultivate an environment that's willing to, to put their hand up when they've got something wrong and, 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 you know, how do we then learn from it and learn from it for, as a group? And I think that's, that's a really interesting thing to think about. I think before we started recording, Ryan, you and I were talking about anybody who's in a profession or who has an expertise of any type like Dan does, if they have that ability to be able to articulate it and do it in a way that's enjoyable to listen to, that it's just so fascinating. I must admit, by the time I got to the end of both recordings, the one that we did when the evening that we did it with Dan, which was, I think it was over two hours, we were on the on the call with him, and also listening to it back to do the edit for this episode, I was just exhausted because I just felt like my brain had had like a full on workout, and it's it's yeah. very very satisfying. We talk, I mean, bringing it back to mental health, one of the big things that that I think has come up a couple of times, but that I thought about with this episode in particular was something that's really good for your mental health is stimulating your brain to learn in new things is listening to something incredibly interesting. I mean, I hope people take that from all of our episodes, but particularly <laughs> with, with Dan today, it was just, there was so much to learn from his, from his experience and from his knowledge. And as you say, Ryan, the way that he communicated that just made it that you were able to understand these kind of complex ideas in a simplified way and apply them to, to your own thinking when, the normal situation that Dan applies them to is kind of elite professional sport, which is in and of itself quite a unique environment. Well, he touched on the, the why, didn't he, quite a lot? Yeah. Like, you may know somebody hasn't done something. If you're looking at it as a footballer, I think it was described as you may not have tracked back or you may not have done your role in that certain moment. And often, I think if you're the leader in that situation, then you may just go into a mode where you shout at them and you say, I've told you to do that and you haven't done that, rather than I've told you to do that, why haven't you done that? Mm. Or is the message clear? Did you did you not do it because you didn't understand the message or did you not do it because you decided not to do it, which are two, again, two completely different things. And he mentioned how complex it is. So I think it is important for anybody listening, if you are a leader or you are a manager or you do manage people in any way, whether it's, you might be a carer for somebody, you might be a manager in your team at work, in relationships, whatever it may be, that the clearer the message, the the better the relationship and the understanding will be between two people or a group of people. And I think that's one thing you can take away from Dan's episode, that work on the message, work on the communication, create the environment, and, and all the information you're passing to one another just becomes that a little bit more easy to take on board. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And I think that's a really good place for us to wrap up, Ryan. So thanks for um, thanks for joining me today and, uh, and and giving us your thoughts. And thanks to you, the listener, for joining us and, and listening along. Before we wrap up, we just want to do a little bit of signposting, as we always do. If you ever need any help any 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 time of the day, you can call Samaritans at 116-123. And the same applies to the Calm Zone. They have a phone line, which is open 5 p.m. to midnight. And that's 0800 58 58 58. We're going to hand you over to Dan Abraham's quick fire to finish us off today. But before we do so, just remember that the purpose of man marking is to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. We've started that conversation today, but we're asking you to keep it going. Talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your colleagues, talk to strangers. 
But most importantly of all, remember to listen. And sometimes listening could save a life. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. How, scientific, how scientifically accurate is Happy Gilmore? <laughs> um, ball go home. Um, uh, self-talk um, works. It has, has been demonstrated to make a difference when you are when the self-talk is aligned more towards specific things, things that you can control, things that give you um, direct instruction, um, things that can help you manage emotions. Uh, ball go home would be. Um, uh, I think you could probably say it to yourself. Uh, 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 you do talk to your ball. You do talk to your ball. Sit down, ball. Get up. Yes. Bite. Um, move. Whatever it might be. Um, but that's deeply unscientific that that works. You can't talk to your ball. And in terms of a run up and hit, if you did that as a professional, that's career suicide. But fun, nevertheless, if someone decided to do that. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I talk to my ball, I'm like, oh, no, don't go in that bush. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, we don't want to hear about your personal life, but <laughs> I'm not. I'm not getting into that kind of marital psychology here. Jeez. Right. Okay. So a little bit more personal. Yeah. Um, what's the bigger crime to humanity: socks in bed or socks with sliders? Which I assume are, yeah, sliders, flip flops, kind of thing. Are we going yeah. for? Yeah. Uh, socks in bed. Socks in bed. Yeah. Agreed. When do you take your socks off, though? Because do you take them off when you're in the bed to get the full feel? You take them off before, oh, um, because God. you don't you don't want you know you you've or you have specific bed socks, mm. so you don't have dirty feet in your bed. Okay, yeah, kind of makes sense. But it's nice and cold when you take them off in the bed. Is it nice and cold as in that's a good thing, or is it yeah. nice and cold as in that's a that's a well? So so you want to take off your socks? That's fine. Yeah, just take <laughs> off your socks. But you know, if it's if it's if it's cold, 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 you might want to have some some specific bed socks to be able to put on that aren't your walking around the house socks. Yeah, completely agree. Big chat. You can tell. You can tell. You can tell. I'm a, I'm a heavily orderly person. <laughs> um, Dan, you spent some time working with Eddie Howe at, at, at Bournemouth. Does Eddie Howe own any other clothes other than Bournemouth tracksuits? <laughs> uh, wow! Um, I, I've so never I, seen him in anything else. I uh, have spent the last few years working in the medical department at AFC Bournemouth with um, a little bit from time to time interaction with gaffer um i uh have never seen him outside of uh bournemouth clothes but that's because i've never been invited to any of their christmas parties or social dues and that probably says that i'm not very well liked at bournemouth i suppose <laughs> so that's why i've never seen Eddie Howe in other anything other than those kind of clothes and also because i live two hours away from bournemouth and i do i've done only a day a week in the medical department so maybe i'm liked all along it's just inconvenient to get there for their social parties people are probably thinking Oh, don't invite the psychologist to the Christmas. Do everyone be on the ale, pouring the hearts out to him. 
That's normally what I. Well, well I, my, I, I, me I, my Christmas dues anyway. <laughs> I, I, I think it's yeah. I think it is to do with don't invite the psychologist because as you said earlier, you said oh this has been really interesting, really good, but this is basically my only only line of conversation. So this is very interesting until it becomes very boring. I've got nothing else to talk about in my life, so that's probably why they don't invite me. I don't think that's true. We had, this, <laughs> we had large pizza chat before, Dan. I'm sure that. We did. We did. Well, I'm just being, I'm just joking. Just <laughs> <laughs> so, have you got any embarrassing or funny stories from working with football clubs? F- footballers have superstitions. And um, uh, one of, when I first started, it was in this non league club, actually. Uh, we had a player who had to leave the changing room last. It was just like, there was just no way that you know he was convinced himself i think he was my toughest ever case study he convinced himself he was going to have a bad game if he didn't leave the changing room last or dressing room last last and um we midway through the season we had a player who who uh wayne burnett bought in who had exactly the same superstition <laughs> and in, his, in that first game where they both got chosen to play together there was, and this is no word of a lie. This is no, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not, not spinning the truth. There was literally a tussle um, as to who was going to leave the dressing room before, uh, you know, who was going to leave first. And in the end, Wayne came in and grabbed both of them out. And I think he did it quite skillfully because he did it simultaneously as best he could. And um, then they went out and played. And I think we won. So that was that was quite good. I'm sure there's other amusing Just stories. imagine them, like, yeah. wedged in a door. <laughs> yeah, I was it, thinking when you were telling that, Dan. What happens yeah. if you sign somebody who also wants to leave? <laughs> oh yeah, no, no. It was, it was, it was actually quite comedy. Um, and and uh, yeah. So I was there. I was still in the change room. So serious. Um, so they clearly didn't have that with any other staff. You know, that that there could be staff who were roaming around the change room, but. If it was, if there was another player, then it, it was doomed. They were going to have a bad game. So it's just it was uh, it was quite bizarre. If you want an insight into how little we know about golf, Danny spelt put wrong. So <laughs> <laughs> how did you P U T put? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you spell it? The Yorkshire version P U T. Yeah. Uh well, see, I thought it was double T, but it didn't auto correct me. So I assumed I must be right. <laughs> that's a good philosophy to live by there Dan. if, if autocorrect doesn't auto automatically correct you it has to be right in life yeah that's that's kind of how i've done most things so far <laughs> i'm still i'm still going so. <laughs> okay uh what's your proudest moment that's an outcome of your work in sport I think my career has been interesting in as much as I would be 100% open and honest and I haven't had uh, a success like working with a team that's won the Premier League uh, or anything like that. That's just that's just the way the cookies crumbled thus far. Um, I've had I've worked with players who have won uh, big trophies and there's definitely one in particular, a client who won the, uh, a massive, massive... Uh, he won the Champions League last year and we'd been working hard together and he made a particularly a particular impact in one of the games leading into the Champions League final and that was I was very proud of that um, I was 
I think my bizarrest, most pinch myself moment was when I was working with England Rugby when we toured South Africa. And um, I was basically when they sung the national anthem, the rest of the staff are kind of opposite them, but out of the camera. And so you've got, we were in Joburg, 60,000 South Africans, basically English people as well, but mostly South Africans, hostile atmosphere. And I was singing the national anthem opposite the English players. And I was just like, what the hell am I doing here? How have I ended up here? This is just insane, you know. Uh, and, and I think, you know, getting a call from Eddie Jones to, to come and work with him and, and his coaches and the team, you know, was, was you know, kind of you're driving home and you're going after that initial conversation and going, that's, you know, I've worked really hard to put myself in this position. Um, I think that uh, when I... And little things like that where uh, other successes working with golfer who won a major, working with, you know, Olympians who have won gold, working with athletes, players in other sports who've gone on and been successful. I've just not quite had that team success so far that would be, a, would be an awesome thing. And I'd be only a tiny, tiny, in all of these, only tiny parts of the process but also the times when you're working in as we said earlier career transitions and things like that and and also writing my books and having randomly having players or people parents from Oklahoma and Ohio and California and uh, Sydney and Hong Kong and the book being you know saying this has really influenced us and being translated into Turkish and Chinese and Spanish and those kind of things and it's just like wow that's I'm 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 proud of that, and I I feel I can give myself permission to feel proud of that. I think that's that's that that those would be the kind of things I would say. So not one single thing, but all of those things. Sorry, I got a bit carried away there, but I, no, no, I I think you could definitely be proud of that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's super. Really 